Every true Christian loves the gospel, but not every Christian is excited about telling others about the gospel. A Gallup poll revealed that 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ personally, which is, as you can see, almost all have not done that. Uh, there's reasons for that. It was revealed that 20% of those Christians felt discouraged from their last attempt to share it. Something went wrong. They felt like it was unsuccessful. They were intimidated by it, and they just thought, it's not for me. Uh, 43% felt their own timidity was an obstacle. In other words, they're just plain scared to do it. It is not comfortable to go up to a stranger or an almost stranger and just start talking about those kinds of eternal values that people usually don't discuss in the course of the day. A 41% said they found it hard to answer tough questions when witnessing. When you hear the term evangelism, you probably, not all, but many, if not most, feel a little uneasy about it because you think, that's just not for me. It's cut out for other people, but not for me. You think of evangelism in terms of uh, maybe somebody giving an altar call with three stanzas of just as I am in the background, or you think of an inspiring speaker like an ex-convict or an entertainer sharing a series of messages, or you think of evangelism in terms of large-scale stadium arena evangelism, and you think, I like that kind because I don't have to do it. Somebody else can do it. I just bring people, and it's, that's great. That's not for me. Or you may even think of the more direct approach uh, that some still do, some effectively, and that is you knock on a door, and you just, as they open the door, kind of just start talking about it. You get in their face with the gospel. And a lot of people find that intimidating. In fact, many people who go in teams knocking on doors knock on the door and pray with all their heart that nobody's home so that they don't have to do that. My first encounter with an evangelist was not a very favorable one. I was a brand new Christian. I didn't know what formal evangelism was all about, and I went to a tent revival. Now, mind you, I'm a Southern California surfer at that time. I've got shorts, bare feet, and a T-shirt on and a big old Bible, and I come to the tent. They won't let me in. They won't let me in because I'm not dressed properly. I don't have shoes on. They said, this is the house of God. I looked around and said, it is? It's a tent. It's got dirt on the floor. And I was greeted then by the evangelist in a three-piece dark suit with his hair plastered back and uh, with thundering message of the gospel. And that was my first exposure uh, after coming to Christ to that type of evangelism. This morning... I'd like us to look at how evangelism is supposed to work. The theme of this message this morning is how the gospel works. And we understand from this text that the sharing of the gospel is to be something natural, more spontaneous than packaged or weird. It is to be something that flows out of the natural life of the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul could never separate the gospel from the church. They are inseparable, inextricably bound together. The church exists because of the gospel. The gospel is spread because of the church. They serve one another. They depend on one another. And it is not something confined to a few professionals. The spreading of the gospel 
is to be done by all believers as a part of their life. It flows from every believer. Billy Graham said, The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation. We cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. And God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Verses 5 through 10 shows how the gospel works. There's three movements of the gospel in the life of every believer. First of all, the gospel is received. Second of all, the gospel redirects, that is, it changes. And thirdly, the gospel rings out. So it comes in, we receive it, it redirects the way we live and the way we think, and then it flows out from us. So let's read the verses together. Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The gospel, first of all, is received. And as you look at verse 5, the gospel comes in two ways. In word and in deed, or with the lips and with the life. Notice he begins, our gospel did not come to you in word only. It didn't come just in word, but it certainly includes the words. Verbally sharing the gospel. The idea here of it didn't come in word only is it was accompanied with something else, but even though it was accompanied with something else, we still used words. Now that's how the gospel is shared primarily, and that is verbally. We articulate with words. The gospel is called the good news. News has to have words in it so those words can be understood. So it's important that you never think the gospel is something only lived the gospel is also something shared with the mouth, but it didn't come in word only. In fact, in the Bible, the gospel is called the Word of God. The disciples said to Jesus, we know that you alone have the words of eternal life. In Romans chapter 10, we read, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So you've got to see it in a life, but you also have to hear it from the lips. When Jesus sent out his twelve, uh, we remember Jesus was in Galilee and he looked over the crowds and he saw the crowds differently than a lot of us do. He had deep compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, hey guys, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into that harvest field. And so they prayed and he comes to them and he says, now go. And he said, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's important. 
Not as you go, just be nice, live well, but as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word preach is the Greek word to herald or to make a public verbal announcement. It is a word used of a position, in office. In the ancient Greek world, there was a guy named the herald or the preacher. Now, the preacher in the ancient Greek world was not a guy who stood in a pulpit. It was a guy who stood in a Greek court with a scepter in his hand and walked through the court proclaiming loud messages. So that's the idea here. And then at the end of verse 5, we see that the gospel is received not only with the lips. The gospel comes from a life that embodies it. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. In other words, it had a powerful effect on you as you heard the message and as you watched the messengers live their lives. The testimony of the lips was accompanied with the testimony of the life that embodied that message. So the Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit opened their minds, convicted their hearts, made that verbal message, the Word, clear in their life by the outward lives that lived it. Now the Word, in verse 5, assurance. If you have a New International Version, it says conviction, does it not? That would be a better translation of that verse. It came in conviction. You heard it, you saw it, it touched you. It convicted your life as not only you heard a message, but you saw somebody who practiced what they preached. The message can never be separated from the messenger, or it will lose all effectiveness. For you to stand and say, look, pal, just believe it. Well, I don't see it in your life, he says. In fact, I see the opposite. Well, it doesn't matter. Just do what I say, not what I do. You have ruined the message. The message is true, but in the life of a non-believer, it looks as if it's canceled out because the life doesn't embody the message that is shared. People want to see it as well as hear it. Jesus told the Pharisees, You draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Oh, the lips declare what is right, but the life shows something very different. Remember the first part of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Most every Christian has memorized this part by now. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the message of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That message of God was the person of Jesus Christ. God didn't stop with that. The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we saw His glory. God just didn't thunder his message from heaven and say, hey, do this, earth. He sent his son to flesh out and embody that word, that message, so that when people saw Jesus, they saw God's will. And it ought to be conveyed through our lives the same way. Incarnational evangelism. We preach it. We live it. The word becomes flesh, and it dwells among people, and people see it. So, the message... The gospel comes to people through the lips and through the lives of us. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. We make public announcements, and we live that announcement in our lives so that people can see it, and that changes them. They look at you at work, and they think, hmm, what makes you tick? 
how can I be like that? How can I have that contentment, that joy, that purpose in life that I don't seem to have? That's very important. We're ambassadors. Some Christians think they're secret agents. And they've never blown their cover before this world. But the gospel came to these Thessalonians in word and in power. Do people know you're a Christian? Do people around you who work with you, who live around you, know that you're a believer? Or are you a Lady Clairol Christian? Only God knows for sure. I hope not. I hope that that color of your life is very evident and people know for sure that you're a believer. So the first step is that we receive the gospel. That's step number one. The second movement of the gospel as shown here is that the gospel is not only received, it redirects. And as soon as these new believers received the gospel of God into their lives, they started acting differently than they did before. It redirected them. It changed them in five different ways. First of all, they turned from idolatry to serve God. Verse 9. For they themselves, that is, others in Macedonia and Achaia, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned from idols and all your neighbors know it, he's saying. If you go to Asia today, to a place where the gospel is fresh still, it hasn't had uh, the history that it's had in this country. It's still very fresh to people. When they hear it, they change. It's real. Uh, in places like Asia, people who are animistic, they worship nature or idolatry, when they become Christians, they make it very public, even though it will incur persecution, as it did even here. They will often take their idols and publicly burn them in the midst of a town that worship those idols, which just makes them very mad at them. Then they will often have a public baptism. I was in India where the people getting baptized wore a white robe, walked through the middle of town, singing as loud as they could through Main Street. And uh, believe me, everybody looked out the window. And they knew that something happened to whoever it was walking down the street. We went down to the river and we baptized them. They make it that public that they're turning from idols and serving God to show the people that the gods they once served have no power or fear over their lives. They're not afraid anymore. And they're willing to stand publicly to show that Jesus has more power than the idols. A young Burmese who shared the gospel in a village in Burma said, We explained to them the pure, simple gospel and Christ's lordship over the devil and all evil foes, after which they were counseled to confess and forsake their evil deeds and to receive Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. With brokenness and tears and guilt, they responded. And then we burned up the charms and the amulets. We took a wood-cutting knife and broke down the Spirit's house made of bamboo and wood, claiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ and singing Christ's victory songs and putting all of ourselves under the blood of the Lamb of God and the rule of the Holy Spirit and we claimed God's protection. That's the first step. The gospel is received and the gospel redirects. How does it redirect? You turn from idolatry, serving anything else to serve God. The second thing it did to the Thessalonians is it caused an anticipation and an expectation for the return of Jesus Christ. They were excited about His coming. Verse 10. And to wait, that is to wait eagerly, for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
even Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. One of the marks of a true Christian is that Christian is excited about the idea of Jesus coming soon to change everything around them. That prospect excites them. Now I say that's a mark of a Christian because you never see a non-Christian excited about Jesus coming back, do you? The whole idea of, a, of Jesus really coming back to this earth frightens unbelievers if they have any inkling that that might be true. There was a bumper sticker years ago that said, Jesus is coming soon and boy is he mad. Of course, they couched it in a little bit different terms to make the point. But that's how a non-believer sees it. 1980s had a feature article in Time magazine about President Ronald Reagan's belief in the visible return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And they put a spin on it to show how many Americans believe in that same hope. And this is how they ended the article. When Christ really does break into the scene, there's going to be a lot of surprised people. That's an understatement. The Thessalonians were now excited about that prospect. They turned from idols, they're serving God, they're waiting for Jesus Christ to come again. One of the third marks that they were redirected is in verse 6. They followed spiritual leadership. You became followers of us. Literally, you mimicked us. You heard the message, you watched our lives, and then you did what we did. Folks, that's the clearest, most basic definition of discipleship right there. I don't think that discipleship has to be something that's regulated every week, though it can be if you're into that. We've got to meet every week for an hour, and you've got to memorize 50 scriptures. If you want to do that, fine. But simply, uh, discipleship is this. I hear, I watch, and then I do. I mimic what I see. I hear the truth, I see it lived, and so I start doing it. That's discipleship, and that's exactly what they were doing. And they followed people who were higher in the Lord than them. Not higher. What I mean by that is more mature in the Lord. They became followers of people who embodied the truth. Following spiritual leadership and being submissive to spiritual leadership is a mark of a Christian. Hebrews chapter 13, we read, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I think that if you want to be a healthy believer, you need a Paul. I don't think you need literally Paul. You can't have him. He's gone and you have his writings. But you need a Paul-like figure, a person who's a little more mature in the faith than you are, who has insight and practices these things that you can copy. But that's the first step. You also need a group around you like the Thessalonians. doesn't mean you need your own church. But there are believers who are fledgling believers who get to watch your life, who get to hear what you say, and you get to train them up in the Lord. I have had the opportunity to have spiritual mentors and examples who have given me, given me precepts in the Bible and also practice with their lifestyle, and it has accelerated my growth. Now look at verse 6. Another way their life was redirected is the joy that they exhibited. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that the word joy is in the same sentence as affliction? I'll tell you what, an American didn't write that. Because we tend to separate 
affliction and joy. We think that if there's affliction, you can't be happy. One of the paradoxes of the Christian is that pain and affliction is married with joy. The true gospel will always produce hostility among people who will not receive it because of the pride of their heart. But it will also produce joy in the heart of the one who does receive it. There's many scriptures that speak to that. In Acts chapter 13, the apostles and disciples were in Antioch. And Antioch didn't want anything to do with these characters. They ran them out of town in persecution. And it says, they didn't hang their heads and say, boo-hoo, woe is me. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, one of the most famous scriptures about suffering, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Let me take it a step further. Not only does the gospel produce joy in our lives, sometimes the gospel spreads most effectively in times of affliction, in times of persecution, in times of great pressure, the gospel has a greater chance to spread more effectively. Remember the Gulf War? The capacity crowds as people thronged to the churches, albeit maybe for the wrong motivations, but they came. They were all of a sudden interested. In fact, over in Saudi Arabia where our troops were, one chaplain had this testimony. Quote, this is more like a revival than a war. He says that while waiting for war, record numbers of American soldiers were praying, witnessing, and professing faith in Christ. He conducts, of course this was written during that time, four daily worship services with an average of 160 soldiers in attendance. The Christians, he said, have begun to stand out and become like uh, beacons and a rallying point for the soldiers. Now look at verse 7. We see the fifth and final way that this gospel, after it came to them, redirected them. So that you became examples of all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. They became examples to other Christians. You see the flow here? This group of people mimicked, imitated Paul and his team. After they grew a while, in the midst of persecution, they had joy and they followed spiritual leadership, they became the examples that other people followed. The imitators became the ones imitated. That is maturity. And that is something I'd like to just turn around for all of us this morning. Is your life such that people look at it and follow it? Are you imitatable, mimicable? A good question for every Christian to ask this morning is this. If everyone in my church were just like me, what kind of a church would it be? Now you answer that before you point the finger at other people in the church. Well, they're not this, they're not that. Well, what if everyone were just like you? What would it be like? Are you maturing to the status where you become an example? That's normal Christian growth as the gospel's received. The writer of Hebrews said, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need to teach, you have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you become to need milk and not solid food. You followed our example. You grew in joy. You followed spiritual leadership. You turned from idols. You served God. You wait for Him from heaven. And now you are the example to all the people in Macedonia and Achaia. That's great. I want to be quick to say this. 
One of the reasons I am so delighted in this particular fellowship in Albuquerque is that I think that embodies you. I really think you have become an example to people in this city and in this state. And I am delighted and proud to be a part of this fellowship, to be a part of your lives. I get, I get messages from people in this community about you. I get phone calls from people I've never heard of who say, I just want you to know, Pastor, the impression that one of your people has made in my life, how they've come to help me and to love me, or people who are visitors for the first time and have come into this building, and how loved you make them feel. And what a delight it is to be involved in a church much like Thessalonica. Get the Word of God out and become an example to all believers. In fact, uh, you might know that uh, there's uh, several pastors who have attended this fellowship, and sometimes regularly when they don't have services, like on Thursday nights, some of you have been on Sunday nights. And uh, I've met them and they said, well, we just have heard things and we want to come and check it out. We want to see how expository teaching works, contemporary worship, and, and how these people are functioning. You have become an example and it's awesome. Now let's look at the next thing in verse 8. And this is the third movement of the gospel in the life of a believer. First of all, it is received Second of all, it redirects. Third of all, it rings forth. It goes out from that same group. Verse 8. For from you, the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Now, would you compare with me two verses? Look at verse 5 compared to verse 8. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. You see how that works? They were receivers, and then they became transmitters of the same gospel. They received it, it redirected them, they became examples, and they shared it. They sounded forth the gospel. In fact, the word sounded forth has at its root... The Greek word echos, where we get the word echoes, or noise. The idea is a large bang was heard in Thessalonia, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, however you want to pronounce it. In that city, a large bang spiritually was heard. And it echoed, it reverberated through all of the valleys of, first of all, Macedonia, which is north, Achaia, which is south, and uh, Paul's writing this letter from Corinth, which is even further south, down in Greece. So these reverberations are sounding forth throughout the ancient world. This should end the notion that the gospel is a private thing. Get that out of your head if it's in there. I heard that growing up now. Don't discuss religion with people. It's a private thing. Jesus said, what you hear in secret, shout from the housetops. I don't read of Jesus keeping it private. He went throughout Galilee, Samaria, and Jerusalem. And I tell you what, he made a loud noise, and many followed him, and a lot of people hated him. But he didn't say, well, I don't want to say this. Some of those Pharisees and Sadducees might get a little offended. It was the truth. And the truth should never be sacrificed. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, Jesus said. Every church that hears the gospel, and certainly we have, that church is then responsible for spreading the gospel. 
We can't just hold on to it and get excited in it and, ooh, it's awesome, let's just get together and have our little fellowship. We have to get out then and let it ring forth throughout this region. And that need is becoming more urgent, folks. To get it visually in your mind, the urgency of getting the message out, if you took every lost person in the world and you put them side by side, they would go around the globe 30 times. And that line would get 20 miles longer every day. That's just the birth rate. So the gospel needs to get out. Now what I want you to note is that from this small group that was at this time at most a year old, already a small group. Now remember, they have no radio, no television, no tracks. From this small group, Macedonia, Achaia, and trickling down into Greece heard about it. You might want to look at a map sometime to see how impressive that is. I'll tell you why I share that. We are in a media conscious age, right? The media is powerful. You can be in the East Coast, I can be in the West Coast, we can watch the same program at the same time. That is powerful. And as Christians we often say, you know, we got to take advantage of that power. We got to put stuff on the radio and on television and obviously we agree with that in this fellowship because we do it. Though that is good and important, it is not adequate. The gospel is not most effectively shared by radio or by television or by crusades. It is most effectively shared person to person, one on one. These guys had no computers, had no radio, but they were very effective. They got the gospel out. I want you to picture something that I, when I heard it, formed a deep impression in my mind. Let's picture that you had a stadium somewhere. And you packed it with 50,000 people. Every night for 35 years. Every single night for 35 years you filled it full of people. And every night at the altar call a thousand new fresh believers, people came to accept Christ. At the end of those 35 years, you would be further behind in the task of world evangelism than when you began because of the population growth of this world. However, listen to this, if you were the only single Christian on planet Earth and you prayed, dear God, within one year, let me just lead one person to Christ, just one. Well, in two years, at the end of the first year, you'd have two Christians. If both of you got together and prayed that you'd each lead a person to Christ the next year, at the end of two years, you'd have four Christians. At the end of three years, eight Christians. You extrapolate that out, and in 35 years, 35 billion people. That's more people than are around. Basically, in six years, we would be fighting for heathens to evangelize. In six years. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that show you that that personal one-on-one -on -one evangelism is the most effective? Let's call it holy gossip. It's mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. It's, hey, did you hear what Jesus did in his life? It's that kind of evangelism that is the most effective. And you say, yeah, but everybody's not gifted at that. I agree. Not everybody has the gift of evangelism, but evangelism isn't relegated to a, a professional who has the gift. It's a responsibility and a privilege for all of us. For all of us. Let me give you an example. Evangelism is called a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's a responsibility in as much as helps or giving, though those are spiritual gifts, 
There's also a responsibility for all of us. What if somebody was in need? How ludicrous it would sound if somebody said, please help me, I have a need. For you to say, I'd like to, but I don't have the gift of helps. Or if somebody said, well, I would give to the Lord's work, but I don't have that gift of giving. It's not my gift. No, that's a privilege and a responsibility for all of God's people. The reason that the Thessalonian church was so effective and the early church spread is that every one of them became a personal witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, yeah, but I don't want to disturb anyone. I mean, I respect people's right to believe what they want. Well, good, you should. But if your neighbor's house were on fire, would you say, I don't want to disturb him by telling him that. That's bad news. <laughs> if you did, it would sound something like this. The other day my friend's house was on fire. I don't think he knew it, even though he was inside it. He must have been asleep. I thought about telling my friend his house was on fire, but then I wondered what he would think. He might get embarrassed if I were to tell him. Or what should I do if I got all sooty? And what would my friends who don't believe in fires think? <laughs> Besides, isn't that the fireman's job? You've received the gospel. Awesome. Are you redirected by it? Have you turned from what you know is not right to serve the living true God? Are you waiting for him? Do you respond to spiritual leadership filled with joy in the midst of affliction? Are you becoming examples? That's maturity. Finally, sending it forth, ringing it forth. May God put it within our hearts to pray this year. And what a prayer it would be to say, Lord, my prayer is that during this year, that just one person through my life, I could lead to Jesus Christ. Imagine thousands of people coming to Jesus Christ through your witness as the word of the Lord has sounded forth.